Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Language. Today I'm talking to Jeffrey Sampson about the new edition of his book, Writing Systems, in which he gives an overview of some of the many ways in which cultures have chosen to record their languages in written form, and considers what this can tell us about language, psychology, and ethnography, among other fields. In this interview, we discuss some of the major types of scripts, how they came to be associated with their respective languages, and how technology mediates their use. And we talk about how the study of writing fits into linguistics as an academic discipline. I'm delighted to welcome Jeffrey Sampson to talk about the new edition of his book, Writing Systems. Jeff, you mentioned that the first edition of this book back in 1985 represented something of a novel direction in linguistics. Could you tell us how it came about? Yes, sure. Um, Back then, um, things have changed. But um, in the 1980s, linguists on the whole simply didn't regard written language and scripts as uh, within their purview at all. Somebody famously, I think it was uh, that Frenchman Derrida, described written language as the wandering outcast of linguistics. And American linguists were quite explicit about the fact that um, language was speech and written language really didn't count. I thought this was strange. and really uh, didn't stand up to logical examination. So I thought it might be worth uh, writing a book of this kind. And I realized that actually I happened to be rather well placed uh, to do it myself. Like most people who get involved in linguistics, I had a few languages other than English at, you know, at my Disposal, and it just so happened that the languages I knew a bit about tended to be ones with rather diverse uh, writing systems. So my first degree was in Chinese and uh, particularly uh, focused on very early Chinese documents where you could still see the the script evolving a bit um, into what it eventually became. Um, I remember that as a teenager, I'd been fascinated by reading uh, the book by Michael Ventris and John Chadwick about the decipherment of the very early uh, Linear B Greek script, utterly different from the Greek alphabet as we uh, know it today. Um, And then I spent a bit of time Uh, studying biblical Hebrew in order to be able to read bits of the Old Testament in the original. And one way or another, I thought, well, here's a book that ought to be written. And if you don't give it a go, Jeff, um, who's going to? And anyway, it was was fun to do. I think it was one of the most enjoyable books I've uh, written, and I've written a few on different topics now. Um, and it was fun doing the new edition, too. I must say, it's also a very enjoyable book to read in, in all sorts of levels. 
Um, turning to the, the new edition, uh, I mean, obviously there have been relevant advances which you which you um, reference throughout in in classical scholarship, in psycholinguistics, particularly in, in ethnography and so on. Um, and of course, technology has brought many changes to the way written language um, features in our environment. Was there a particular trigger for this for this revision at this time? I think it was simply the realization that actually, after uh, what is it, just about thirty years there was really quite a lot of new stuff in many areas of the book. I mean, you might think, well, writing systems don't really change that much. Um, why would there be room for a, uh, a whole new edition? Because the new edition actually has, it is genuinely new. It's got lots of uh, new stuff in it. But for instance, there's a whole chapter now on how information technology deals with uh, the scripts of the world, which sounds like a rather dry, purely technical um, issue. And of course, it is a bit technical, but it also turns out um, to have linguistic interest in it. But then, you know, going right away from something as new as information technology, archaeologists have come up in, in the meantime, in, during that 30 years, with real new discoveries about how the ultimate ancestor of our own alphabet first got going. Uh, you know, what something that simply wasn't known when I wrote the first edition and is now. And then, uh, as I think um, you mentioned just now in putting the question, when I wrote that first edition, one of the aspects I was interested in was the psychology of how we learn to read and write and how um, writing works for us when we're mature readers and writers of a script. But the, the psycholinguistics of writing had really only just started to get off the ground at that point. A lot of things were guesses rather than anything you could call findings. And some of the guesses have turned out to be quite wrong in retrospect. Because just around that time, there was a huge explosion of psycholinguistic research um, in this area. Uh, and some of it has produced uh, results that cast a quite new light on things I wrote about in the, in the first edition. For instance, there was a very influential idea uh, back in the 80s. It was um, due to a man called Goodman, Kenneth Goodman who believed that um, reading was what he called a psycholinguistic guessing game. He knew, and this is true, that although we're not conscious of this as we read, our eyes only fixate on a certain number of points in the text. We don't, we don't comprehensively scan every bit of every mark that's there on the page. And he thought, and many people thought after him, and at the time I thought it sounded very plausible, that we sample here and there and we fill in the intervening stuff by making surmises. It turns out that actually that's not really it at all. We, we do sample here and there, but the sampling is very intelligently controlled, if one can put it that way, about something that's not a conscious process. And there's really very little for a mature reader who, you know, does 
read the script that he's facing um, perfectly well. Um, it's um, there's really very little guesswork involved at all. It turns out actually that when we get very old and our eyesight becomes weaker, that we might start to resort into a bit of guesswork then. But that's a uh, you know that's a really rather minor thing compared to what we used to think 30 years ago. I think there's some, there's some very interesting questions. I mean, personally, I find these very interesting questions. Um, you mentioned in a couple of places that the idea that the, the increased interest in, in written language from a research standpoint is connected with certain broader trends in the intellectual history of linguistics. Was that initial upswing already uh, connected with certain, maybe a certain amount of scepticism about the main research direction of linguistics prior to that time? Uh, well, I've always been somebody uh, very sceptical about Chomsky and generative theoretical linguistics. Actually, I should say always. No, I, when I um, was a, a young, naive graduate student, I, I, was, um, I was convinced, as most people were in those days, but the scales fell from my eyes. So, yes, in a sense, if you were one of those true believers who thought that universal grammar is genetically innate in us, then it follows that you're not going to be very interested in written language, because even if it were true that um, speech were in some sense innate in the human species, uh, writing clearly is not, because it's um, a matter of only the last few thousand years. So um, the fact that I came to not really have much time for generative linguistics, did I suppose make me, it gave me more of a reason than some linguists had to be interested in in writing. It was, it seemed to me, a entirely valid uh, branch of language study to investigate. And I'd like to ask a related question, which I was going to mention later, which was, uh, was a lot of the treats, in some sense, the, the origins of, of written language. Do you think, broadly speaking, it's it's fair to be somewhat uniformitarian about the way we assume people were processing early language, or do you think it's possible that we've, uh, that we've in some sense, by either genetic or cultural evolution, at least um, appreciably adapted as a species to the medium of written language? Well, I suppose it's possible. I mean, certainly we know that... Um there does continue to be within recorded history evolutionary adaptation of the brain, though nobody could possibly say that for sure about something as specific as adaptation for reading and writing. But I think that would be uh, a very speculative thing. And it's clear that people had to learn to write. The individual child has to now, and the, the species had to learn it. So the very early Sumerian writing, which is, as far as we know, the the earliest writing on the planet, um, is noticeable if one looks at specimens of that, and I illustrate a specimen of it in, in the book, that they hadn't yet got the idea that since words in speech come out in a linear form, it's important for the written marks corresponding to the words to be organized linearly. I mean, any modern script, 
the lines might go in different directions. Chinese has traditionally gone vertically. We uh, traditionally go horizontally left to right and still do. And um, Hebrew goes horizontally right to left. But in each case, the, the words are in some logical sequence. With very early Sumerian script, they hadn't yet, as it were, worked out that that was a good thing to do. And then uh, they did. So to some extent, one can see them learning what to do with this new technology. But this was, I would have thought, learning. It wasn't evolution in any biological sense. And you make the point also that uh, there's compelling evidence in your view now that uh, the written language is an independent rediscovery, that there's no possibility of entertaining a monogenetic hypothesis about writing systems. I think that's, yes, that's, that is now indisputable. And it wasn't um, when I wrote the first edition. Of course, one thinks, well, Chinese script, which is certainly um, very old, although the beginnings of it are simply not available in the archaeological record. When we when we see early Chinese, um, it's already obviously a well-developed um, script. That looks utterly different from anything in the Near East or, or Europe. And... It's a very long way away, so one would think that surely that must have evolved uh, separately, and probably it did. But it is not not impossible that because we know there was coming and going through Central Asia from a very early uh, period, so it's not impossible that the idea and a bit of the technology of writing might have moved from one end of the Eurasian landmass to the other, you know, who knows? And there were people, there have been people, who have believed that, yes, that was so. In in fact, the book that was the standard linguistic book about writing at the time that I first thought of writing a new one was a book that came out in the 1950s by a man called Ignaz Gelb. And he asserted, as far as I remember, more or less as a matter of fact, that... um, uh, you know, these uh, scripts do have a common origin, although it's very far in the past and not really recoverable. What has made it impossible now uh, to go on thinking that all scripts might have had a common origin is that the Mayan script of Central America has been well deciphered. At, at the time I wrote the first edition, a number of people thought it probably was true writing. And in fact, when I was a graduate student at Yale University, one of the courses I took um, was on what was then known about the decipherment of Mayan. But there were still people who argued that, that no, it's an exaggeration to imagine that this is writing. What it is is just stylized pictures of Mayan gods and goddesses and so on. And admittedly, they put an awful lot of pictures on a a page, and not the page is quite the right um, term in their case, but um, but but nevertheless, that's all it is. It's ritual, stylized icons. It's not so. We now know, and I can't, but there are people who can look at a a Mayan inscription and read it off in in Mayan and know what it means. There's, and furthermore, it's clear that the Mayan script. Uh, goes back so far that it's just totally unreasonable to imagine that there might have been long before anybody was known to have crossed the Atlantic 
uh, let alone the Pacific. So this has to have been uh, an independent invention. And if writing has been invented more than once, why do we doubt that it's been invented a number of times in different places? Personally, I think it's quite unlikely that Chinese script ever owed anything in its um, origins to the family of scripts that our own alphabet belongs to. One thing I mean, I should possibly you know, put in at this point, in, in the early section of the book, you discuss some of the criteria for considering something to be a writing system versus versus not a writing system. Um, can you amplify what, what would be the critical features of, say, Mayan, which would identify those uh, visual displays as being written language as opposed to merely, in quotes, pictures? Yes. Well, let's contrast it with um, something that I would... I wouldn't count as writing. The example I use in the new edition is the international symbol uh, system of garment care symbols. I mean, these days, I think by European law, um, any clothes you buy have to have a little tab inside which shows you what's a good way to launder them. And they are little pictures, and some of them you can sort of see what they mean, and others, they're just symbols, and you have to look at a table and it tells you what they mean. But the key point that means they're not what I would call writing is that they're not tied to any particular spoken language. The one that means wash by hand, you could perfectly equally translate it into French. I suppose that would be laver à la main, I'm not sure. And furthermore, even the translation into one particular spoken language isn't fixed in terms of words. You could say wash only by hand, or you could say manual wash only, or don't wash by machine. They're all adequate ways of translating it. If you look at um, a sentence of written English, there is really only one sequence of English words that will do. I mean, it has to be English words, and it's one particular sequence of English words that count as a rendering of it into uh, speech. A paraphrase is not reading that sentence. It's paraphrasing the sentence. And the thing about the Maya script is that, likewise, uh, it represents sequences of words which are specifically Maya words with the grammar of the Maya language, which incidentally still exists. It's still a spoken language, so... Um, we can check um, how they put various things. And it represents a sequence of particular words of that language. So that is real writing in a way that the washing symbols or the international road sign uh, system, for instance, are not and you know, wouldn't really pretend to be. Right. In, in reading your book, I you know, very strongly feel that, that fascination of trying to understand how the systems first came into being as, as such. And... I know, as you, you know, discussed, various authorities have speculated about this, although you repeatedly strike a note of, of caution and some scepticism. Do you feel that people have tended to engage in some wishful thinking about how much we can know about the early origins in some cases? Uh, well, yes, um, I think that has been true, but then scholarship has changed in my uh, lifetime generally. You know, modern communication, I mean, the, the very computer system that I'm now using um, to talk to you 
we have such ready access minute by minute to material which 50 or 60 years ago people had to go and scout around a library and they were lucky if they they found it so in a lot of areas uh, things are just more reliable now i think uh, than they were before and as a result it's not it's rather frowned on to sort of make overconfident guesses in a way that sometimes people almost uh, had to do in the past. One example of that might be at one point in the book when I describe the Chinese script and I describe it in a fair amount of detail because it's a it's a complicated script and then I add in at the end of the chapter just in a page or two because it's fun um, the fact that uh, one scholar, who I used to know quite well, actually, because he was um, the professor when I was uh, um, a, an 18-year-old um, uh, undergraduate. in he, he was my professor, as it were, at Cambridge. Edwin Pulley-Blank thought that he found something buried at the heart of Chinese script, uh, which was a sort of alphabet, even though Chinese is not written alphabetically. And it's a lovely idea, and he makes a bit of a case, but I have to say I don't, I can't really feel that it's a strong enough case to take very seriously. And I did wonder whether I should have included it in, in the book, but it's just such fun. Um, the, the Chinese symbols in question are the ones that they use for, oh, everybody knows that the Chinese have names for years, like the, the year of the horse or the year of the, the, the dragon. They name their years and indeed traditionally their months and their days and the hours of the day uh, by this special system of um, just 22 symbols. And it is mysterious what these symbols are doing there in, in the middle of the Chinese script, particularly because most of them are rather different from ordinary Chinese writing. They're just shapes that don't seem to have developed out of pictures. I mean, uh, um, a square or an S shape. And it's a lovely idea to think that it might have been an alphabet because 22 is about the right size of a inventory of symbols to be an alphabet. But I don't believe it is. And I wonder really, in the light of modern scholarship, whether even Edwin Pulley-Blank would keep on uh, pushing this. There was as far as I know, he never actually retracted it. I mean, presumably there's a, there's a you know, distinction between saying, well, this, this system exists, this, as I think you described in this book, this rather the bloodless algebraic system exists for the purpose of forming a calendar, um, without you know, that necessarily having any connection to the way people have chosen to try and encode spoken language on the page. Well, yes. The idea that there's something lurking behind um, the heavenly stems and earthly branches. That's the term that the Chinese use for this set of 22 symbols. Um, the idea that it's something more than just a set of meaningless signs used to name hours and days and years uh, is appealing because it is very hard to imagine a society adopting a set of, as I say, meaningless shapes and giving them meaningless names and saying, right, that's what, that, that seems like the sort of thing that uh, maybe a, a United Nations committee might come up with, but not a, a real life human 
uh, society. But as I say, I, I see no real evidence that it was ever an alphabet. Um, turning back to the, the question of what constitutes uh, written language or what constitutes a writing system, presumably the, the definitions that you're adopting mean would, would suggest that reading or writing in any script is, is kind of a piece as an intellectual accomplishment, then writing one script rather than another script isn't at some level a categorically different kind of intellectual accomplishment, despite what we might rather ethnocentrically think based on our own experiences. Is, is, that, uh, is that a fair assumption? Well, I totally agree with that. Uh, it's clear that um, systems based on sound, as, as our own is, of course English spelling is pretty irregular, but it's fundamentally a system that involves analysing speech into sequences of consonants and vowels and assigning um, letters uh, to them. That involves a lot of mental analysis, which you don't need for a system like Chinese script, where broadly each word has its own sign. The Chinese type of writing is much heavier in terms of its requirements on memory. Um, there are a lot of words in the language, as there are in every language, so there are a lot of different written marks, and you just have to learn each one of them. So that, that places a large burden on memory. Ours places a, a lower burden on memory at the expense of requiring, I forget what the uh, psychologists call it, but language awareness. You have to think analytically about how your words can be split up which is something that children have to learn in the process of becoming literate, and it's not a particularly easy thing to do. It's interesting, for instance, that there has been evidence. How strong this is, I'm not sure, but more than one um, scholar who knows about children's success at learning to read and write in the Far East as well as in Europe have claimed that the phenomenon of dyslexia is much more limited, rarer um, with Chinese-type writing than it is in Europe. Uh, the idea being that what dyslexics have problems with is analysing speech into its components. And you don't really need to do that to read and write Chinese. You just need to have a capacious memory. To, to remember how to write any particular word. But at the same time, you're, you're critical of a view that's, that, that's sort of out there in, in some aspects of the literature, which suggests that the, the kinds of intellectual habits in, engendered by reading a particular kind of language uh, lead to broader social consequences. I read you as being quite sceptical of that kind of claim. Well, it's not so much that I personally am sceptical as... That there was a really rather impressive book written by a woman called Elizabeth Eisenstein quite some time ago now. It, I already referred to it in the first edition, who took the line that um, people had traditionally, and I think she was right, had believed that the disciplines of learning to read and write caused one to organize one's mental contents, you know, one's one's uh, knowledge in a way that illiterates, if one calls them that, or just people who've never been exposed to, to reading and writing, 
do things differently and less systematically. And Eisenstein's point, and as I say, it was it was really very solidly and convincingly argued, I thought, was that it actually it isn't reading and writing in itself uh, that has that effect. Um, the difference came far later with the invention of printing. Now, don't ask me to go further into her argumentation along these lines, because it is quite a while now since I, I read her book. And while I remember that I thought this is solid stuff at the time, I'm afraid at this point, I really don't remember uh, details of the argument. By all you mean, um, you do mention also that there there is um, some degree of specialization to the needs of a particular language that seems to be evident in the scripts, presumably because, well, maybe because there have been changes over time that have optimized them, and that uh, although there is no better or worse system in the abstract that we can, well, at least we wouldn't wish to pronounce on such a thing, um, there are certain scripts that seem to be particularly well adapted to certain uh, kinds of language. Oh, I think so. that's true, yes. And that's one of the leitmotifs of, of the book. Um, as I work through, I mean, the book, as uh, you know, is based on taking a series of case studies of scripts of different types, but using those as pegs on which to hang um, examination of psychological considerations, historical considerations about how scripts develop and, 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 and so on. And one of the points that I keep recurring to is the idea that uh, it's not random the kind of script a language has. There's no suggestion that each spoken language has the script that's ideal for it, because it's quite clear that in many cases the identity of the script which a particular language uses has depended on all kinds of historical considerations, you know, who came in and conquered that particular country or which religion did it adopt, which have nothing to do with the internal nature of the script. But those facts aside, it is also true that some languages are suited to some kinds of script. A very clear example, I think, would be that the kind of script used for Semitic languages, Hebrew and Arabic, is, although it's alphabetic um, and therefore in a sense similar to ours, it's noticeably not like our alphabet in that there are no letters set aside specifically to represent vowels. Each letter in the Hebrew alphabet represents a consonant. Now, it happens that because of the way the Hebrew language works, vowels sort of have a different kind of role in the language from what they do in European languages. That is perfectly satisfactory for Hebrew speakers. Israelis at the present day, I don't think, um, spend any time wishing that they had vowel letters. I mean, in fact, there is a way of writing Israeli Hebrew and adding in indications of vowels, but it's very little used. It's used, I think, in uh, children's teaching books because children aren't yet mature users of the script, but um, adults don't uh, feel any need to use it. But a, a script like that wouldn't work for us. Of course, our alphabet ultimately came from the same source as the Hebrew alphabet, but came to us through the Greeks. And as soon as the Greeks got hold of it, 
they turned a number of what had been consonant letters in, in the Hebrew alphabet into letters for vowels. That's where our vowel letters uh, come from originally. And they had to do that because you couldn't write Greek satisfactorily with a script that had no way of specifying the, the vowels in, in a word. It would just be too ambiguous. I hadn't really appreciated until I read your book exactly how widespread this process had been of borrowing um, writing systems to treat, in some cases, completely different uh, languages, which b- impose very different demands. But that seems to be historically quite the quite the normal case. If I think of an example, I mean, the example that sort of springs to mind, which you mentioned at some point, is uh, Maltese being a Semitic language that's written in Roman characters. But in some sense, historically, that's been very much the normal, well, at least a very widespread state of affairs, hasn't it? Well, it, it has. I, I know that fact about um, Maltese. I know actually nothing about the... Um, the history of Malta or the Maltese language, but I would assume it's because from a very early stage, Malta was was ruled by um, Europeans. Uh, uh, there were these people called the Knights of Malta that I don't know much about, I'm afraid. And I suppose Europeans weren't going to s- stand for um, this this rather sinuous, curly Arabic script that they couldn't read. So presumably they said, well, look, you know, we're in charge now. Um, and... Um, this is the way to write A, B, C, D, and, and the Maltese did. That, that may be, I mean, that's a pure guesswork, and it may be a gross misrepresentation of, of what happened there. But that sort of thing certainly did often happen. I mean, a case where I do know about the history is Vietnam, where Vietnamese is, is, is a language, it's a situation which um, I'm not sure there's any parallel to in familiar European languages, um, it's a language which originally was completely unrelated to Chinese, but for a thousand years, Vietnam was a colony of China. The Chinese just thought of it as part of China. And in consequence of that, the great majority of the Vietnamese vocabulary is borrowed from Chinese. They, there is still a layer of native Vietnamese words, but they're swamped by all the Chinese words. And uh, as a natural consequence... Uh, Vietnamese was written for hundreds of years um, in Chinese, supplemented with some special Chinese-like symbols for the words that were actually native Vietnamese and not borrowed from Chinese. Um, And that worked fine. It looked odd to the Chinese because there were these funny symbols that didn't mean anything, scatterbin. But then I think when the Vietnamese uh, Chinese had such cultural prestige that I imagine when the Vietnamese wanted to write to be read by anybody outside their own little uh, country, they would have written in straight Chinese, the way that medieval uh, Europeans wrote in Latin. But then it became a French colony, and the French simply took the line that, well, we can't be doing with this stuff that we can't read. So from now on, uh, Vietnamese is going to be written with the Roman alphabet. Roman alphabet heavily supplemented by subsidiary symbols. Um, there's a D with a line across it. Uh, there are masses of uh, diacritic accent marks because um, Vietnamese has six tones. It's a tone language, but it has more tones than Mandarin Chinese, and it has a contrast between long and short vowels, and all that has to be. So you sometimes, well, often get a letter with more than one accent piled up on on top or below it. Um, but 
the Vietnamese now always use this version of the Roman alphabet, and I think very few Vietnamese indeed can read Vietnamese as for hundreds of years it used to be written. You uh, mentioned in, in, in this connection Japanese as having one of the most elaborate script systems, which in, to some extent reflects that borrowing, but also reflects uh, the integration of several different kinds of writing system into one more or less coherent whole. Yes. I, th I think it's not controversial to say that Japanese script is extraordinarily complicated and surely the most complicated of any script currently in everyday use for a, for a modern spoken language. So much so that I, I feel convinced that if somebody described Japanese script as a hypothetical possibility, even um, sophisticated, um, knowledgeable linguists would have little hesitation in saying, no, no, that won't work. That's, you know, that's just too much. No human beings could deal with that. But uh, they do. Um, and, um, you know, there are people who think that complicated scripts might hold users back, but uh, the Japanese not only can read and write their own script, but have managed to become one of the most technically advanced nations in the world. I, I mean, I think they're a very good example of just, well, let's put it the opposite way. People in Britain often think, oh, it would be great if we could simplify our spelling system. It's such a burden on children. It's, it must hold children back. Well, if the Japanese can achieve what they've done in technology and in many other respects, um, working with this script, which is just a street more complicated than anything, anything that we know, um, then I really don't believe that um, English spelling can be a major burden on British civilization. Continuing on the theme then of, of um, Japan and technology takes us to the, the chapter you devote to covering some of the consequences of, of technology and globalization for writing systems. This seems to have had effects in various different directions, given that, you know, as you, as you point out, there's some international pressure has, has resulted or has contributed to, for example, the change in writing direction of certain scripts. But conversely, in the case of, for example, Japanese kanji, the uh, use of technology has uh, had the rather counterintuitive effect of expanding the um, the range and prevalence of them in use. Is that right? Yes, that's right. And I mean, I think people in the West can often be a bit naive. I mean, they look at Chinese type scripts and Japanese script is ultimately derived from Chinese script, although, although far, far more intricate than, uh, than Chinese script used for writing Chinese. People here look at it and, and think, well, surely any approach they can take that would reduce this memory burden you know, they'd naturally want to take it, wouldn't they? And so they imagine that, um, because I won't try to launch into an explanation of how Japanese script works because um, the interview won't, it would take too long, but um, it combines writing on what we call a phonographic system, a system of indicating sounds with a Chinese type system where words have their own signs. And I think we're naturally disposed to imagine 
that well if they have the choice they want to use more phonographic writing and less uh, logographic writing that is writing where each word has its own uh, symbol but now that um, writing is done at a computer with word processing systems is the other way around when people had to write by hand in japan well sometimes they couldn't quite remember every detail of, of the, the graph for a particular word. And in that case, the easy thing, the easy way out was to write it phonographically if it was a word where you had the choice. Often you didn't have the choice, but sometimes you do. Now the computer remembers every detail with no problem at all. Um, so they write uh, more words uh, logographically, uh, that is the Chinese way. Um, what's more, in the decades following the Second World War, there was a move to reduce the total number of different graphs that were recognized as able to be used, or legitimate to, to, to be used, in order to make the thing simpler, make the burden on the child learning the system to, to rein it in a bit. Now that we've got computer word processing, it's a matter of indifference to the computer, whether it has to remember 4,000 um, symbols, as it were, or 40,000 symbols. Um, so well, probably they don't, Japanese word processing systems wouldn't have as many as 40,000 different word graphs in, but many more than people used to be comfortable about remembering. And so again, the complexity of the system as it's actually used has tended to increase as a result of information technology, not decrease. Do you uh, have any speculations as to the effects that future technological developments might have on the way writing systems emerge or evolve? Um, no, I, at the moment, uh, I think there's no reason to see technology as changing them in any particular way. There was a period I remember, because I got involved with computers quite early um, in the 1960s, and I remember there was a period in those early days, computers and written language didn't really have a lot to do with each other. You, they were used for things like um, organising payrolls or, or calculating scientific um, uh, problems, and you might, the thing might have to print out the odd word to label a graph but it wouldn't be printing out whole paragraphs at a time. In fact, in the 1960s, usually they, could only, they couldn't produce lowercase letters, only uppercase letters, because um, the wider the um, range of symbols to be printed, the more the burden on memory. And back in the 60s, memory, computer memory was very expensive. Now, of course, it's as cheap as chips. So there was a period in the 1980s when it started to become clear that in the future, writing was going to be mediated by computing technology. I mean, anybody with eyes to see could see that that was the way uh, things were going to go. And it did look then as if that was going to impose serious constraints on writing. I mean, it's like um, a little earlier than that, Teleprinters had had a very restricted character set, which didn't include semicolons. And you got complaints from people who 
needed in connection with their profession to use teleprinters, that I like semicolons, why can't I produce them anymore? Well, the the early computer character sets did have semicolons, but um, there were other ways in which they were uh, limited. I mean, we all know, for instance, the business about opening and closing inverted commas or quotation marks looking the same, um, not distinguishing between curls in one direction and curls in the other direction. And it, it, as I say, it looked as if the onset of computer-mediated uh, writing was going to regiment written English and no doubt other written languages into something that lacked the full richness of the printed writing that we had known for donkey's years, centuries. But that all changed uh, because we now have methods of encoding uh, anything, you know, that, uh, no matter how subtle that occurs in a script. Essentially, the system that um, underlies the change I'm talking about is, uh, you've probably heard of Unicode. And now that we have Unicode, there is no reason why computer-mediated writing should need to be any less subtle, differentiated in its, in its resources than traditional print or indeed uh, handwriting. Uh, it could always be, of course, because um, information technology professionals um, tend to be laws unto themselves that um, uh, corners will be cut and people might start finding that um, something that was a legitimate way of indicating something or other in written English up until now um, you know, hasn't been provided for within uh, some particular word processing system. But if so, that's just because some of the IT professionals are falling down on their job. It, there's nothing about the technology anymore that means that that would have to be so. And I very much hope it won't be so. And as a matter of fact, I don't think it will be so. You mentioned actually in that connection that the um, the ambition of Unicode in terms of standardising the system has uh, expanded considerably since it's uh, since it was first promulgated to cover essentially everything that has ever been used in terms of writing systems. Yes, that's right. At first, um, it only set out to cover um, the scripts of languages that are currently spoken because um, people saw it as a a practical adjunct to computer technology. But of course, computing gets everywhere and a decision was um, made that, well, the cultural inheritance of humanity is something that needs to be preserved. And in future, it's pretty clear that IT, information technology, is going to be instrumental in preserving just about everything that's preserved. So it's crucial that Unicode should uh, be extended to cover extinct scripts that we happen to know about. That Linear B script that I mentioned, which um, was centuries extinct by the time the Greeks got onto the alphabet, um, which was 8th century BC. Uh, already, um, they didn't know that their ancestors had written in another kind of script. But uh, Linear B now has its own encoding into to Unicode, and uh, the aim is to cover the lot.
looking at the the whole text, um, did anything surprise you when you came to revise the book? Was there anything, for example, a, a question that had that had unexpectedly been answered or a a received answer that had unexpectedly been cast into doubt over the course of the last 30 years? Well, I mentioned the business about um, the psycholinguistic guessing game idea, which had seemed plausible to me and to many people in the 1980s, turning out not to be true. And again, the fact that uh, the Mayan script shows that scripts have been invented more than once. Um, you know, that was uh, something new. Um, something that surprised me because one of the scripts that I covered in my first edition, but unlike some of the other examples, this wasn't one that I had prior knowledge of. I learned about it for the purpose of writing the book, um, was the Korean script. And the Korean script is a... Um, what I called a phonographic script. It, it records the sounds of the Korean language. And it was adopted originally as a supplement to Chinese writing because Korea was in a very similar situation to Vietnam in that um, its language was genetically separate from Chinese, but China was so much the dominant cultural source in its vicinity that uh, most words of the Korean vocabulary are Chinese borrowings. And so they at first had this system which used their new phonographic script for things like the little words, the words like of and the in English and the grammatical endings, and used Chinese script for the roots. And the tendency uh, has been to move towards more use of the phonographic script and less of the Chinese-style um, script, partly because the, the Koreans are intensely patriotic people. History gave them such a raw deal over many centuries, I think, that um, I find their sort of rather nationalistic attitude to life extremely understandable. And the, uh, the phonographic script was all their own work, as it were, whereas Chinese script was Chinese. Things came to the point where in North Korea, the communist half of, of Korea, they gave up using uh, the Chinese script altogether, everything, the roots of words as well as the endings and the, and the little grammatical particles, all were written um, in the, uh, the new phonographic script. The trouble is, it, it's very ambiguous because an awful lot of Chinese words sound exactly the same in their, in their Korean uh, versions. Um, nevertheless, um, it seemed to go with everything that one hears about the kind of place North Korea is, that yes, they would, they would go for this, as it were, rationalised, simple system and enforce it rigidly throughout the whole society. But it turns out, um, actually, that uh, they had second thoughts and their, um, their top man, as it, as it was, um, he was a Kim, and I... I um, I lose track of which Kim is which in North Korea. I think um, Kim Il-sung, if I remember rightly, um, said, well, look, um, Korean youngsters are simply losing the ability to uh, understand abstract ideas without being able to see them written down in Chinese. This just uh, won't do. And they've moved back. And now 
if you're a child in a North Korean school, apparently you learn quite a lot more of the old Chinese-derived writing than a South Korean uh, pupil does. That I did find um, really quite surprising. Yes, indeed. Our, um, our time is almost up. I'd like to conclude, as I, as I usually do, by asking what um, your own research plans are. Do you have any more books in the pipeline, any work that you're uh, looking forward to sharing? Well, at, at the moment, um, it isn't a new book. Um, I, I think on the strength of this uh, new edition of the book that we're talking about, I've been invited to um, be the keynote speaker at... Um, a meeting of, there's an international society of writing systems and literacy. It meets in uh, May 2016 in, in the Netherlands. And um, they've asked me to go and uh, kick that off. So one thing I'm starting to do is uh, think about what I'm going to be talking to them about, because, of course, one wants to give them something a bit new rather than just an extract from something that they could uh, go to the bookshop and read for themselves. That, I think, in terms of stuff related to uh, writing systems, is the main thing I have on the on the burner at the moment. Of course, I do other kinds of linguistics too, but that would be going a bit far afield for um, present purposes. Very well. Well, in that case, I will conclude now, but I wish you all the, all the best for, your, uh, uh, for the talk and for the other unspecified purposes. Uh, and let me just say, Jeff Sampson, thank you very much for your time. You are extremely welcome, Chris. I've been talking to Jeffrey Sampson about writing systems. This is Chris Cummins from New Books in Language saying thank you for listening. Okay.